Hello everybody, welcome to the ICS podcast. My name is Martin Calver, I'm the marketing director here at ICS Digital and ICS Translate. Today I'm joined by Ulrich Gielo, who's head of media and global marketing for Betson Group. Um, for those who don't know, Betson are a phenomenal organization, active worldwide in many, many different ways. And I'm sure this is going to be a typically wide-ranging conversation. So Ulrich, thank you for joining us. Thank you for having me, Martin. Very honored to, uh, to be here today with you. Well, I mean, it's my pleasure. Um, I think first step really would be to introduce a little bit about Betson and, and your role, because it's a big company, but you've also got a big role within that company. So for those who don't know, uh, how would you introduce the company and what you do? The way I would introduce the company is by starting uh, with the fact that we are celebrating our 60th anniversary this year. So we've been in business for 60 years. It wasn't always online. It started offline. Uh, the company is held by a few shareholders, one of which that stands out, um, that being Pontus. I often compare Pontus to Sir Martin Sorel. Oh, really? uh, yes, because Sir Martin Sorel is um, the king of media. And I would say that Pontus is very much a revered person when it comes to all things online gambling uh, related. So I, I would compare. I would say that um, Pontus is the um, Martin Sorel of um, iGaming. Uh, Betson operates in many markets at the moment. We we see uh, a lot of growth happening in Latin America. We operate with multiple brands, uh, but you must have seen that recently we've uh, worked quite a bit on the creative for Nordic Bet, and then most recently the Betson brand. Mm-hmm. And so um, you should expect that to, we will start pushing the Betson brand a bit more uh, going forward. We, we penetrated some of the markets with the Betson brand that, that weren't there before, uh, including Denmark, uh, so and also Italy. So we we're making some move forward with making you know Betson Betson the brand, not just yeah, yeah. a corporation, being a, a name that resonates across the globe, basically. I mean, that's a very interesting one. It's something that people outside of iGaming might be familiar with as well. So brands like Unilever, for example, who used to be very much in the background, they, they would be known for their consumer-facing brands of toothpaste and shampoo and so on. But now you're seeing more of that brand. And it's similar, I guess, in this case, where you might have led with certain digital sites or properties or local brands. But now there's a bit more prominence around you know, the overarching brand behind everything. Yes, yes. I, I think that you know there there are different approaches that you can take. One is have multiple brands in a single market, but then it creates some challenges when it comes to operations, cost of creative, mm. localization, etc. Or you can then simplify the operations and put everything behind one brand. Well, I think that here we're trying to do both, basically. Betson being the flagship brand and then the others being adjacent to it. Yeah, I mean, it's a difficult balance to maintain to sort of have your cake and eat it, I suppose. But again, the company has been around for many decades. There is a lot of resource to draw upon to make this happen. Yes. Um, In in terms of your part of the mix, what, what, what would a typical day look like for you? What, what do you enjoy most about it? Because it is a big role, you know, there's yes. lots of things happening. Um, so one of the things that I've enjoyed the most when I first joined Betson is to find myself on 
the reverse seat, if I may say. So I come from a media background, media mm -hmm. agency background. So I, I was servicing brands and advertisers most of my career. But when I joined Betson, then I, I found myself on the brand side having to manage advertising agencies. And so I, <laughs> I, I knew pretty much what the loopholes and the tricks that these agencies would try to actually sell to me, given that this is what I used to do on the other side, you know, back then. And so what, what happened is that naturally and organically so, when I first joined, there was a misunderstanding as to how we could engage with agencies. At the time when I joined, we had Hearts and Science, which is part of the Omnicom group, servicing Betson mostly in Europe, and a few fragmented agencies in Latin America. And so, you know, the people at Betson didn't really have a chance to know how to engage with the agencies. And it all started with um, uh, Andrea, Andrea Rossi, who is our commercial director in Latin America, who once asked me whether we could actually kick off a pitch for Peru and Chile. And then very quickly, it expanded across multiple markets. I said, wait a moment, you know, this is not going to be a single market type of pitch. It's going to be a regional pitch. And so we kicked off the regional pitch there. And from that, really, it gave us the opportunity to get everyone within Betson involved in the decision making mm. of which agency partner would be most suitable to the objectives that we were setting ourselves for moving forward. And... Um, I think that this has been really a, a successful story. Uh, we've done this both in LATAM and also in uh, most of the European markets. Uh, and so my day-to-day -day consists not only in, in managing these agencies, but also um, looking to whether the agencies' promises when it comes to the media that they buy on our behalf are meeting the standards and the market benchmarks. And so we've also made the decisions. Well, I took the initiative to involve auditors that come in that have an overarching view as to how much the media costs benchmark should be in a specific market, mm -hmm. regardless of the industry you know, they operate in. And so we then have the agencies being scrutinized when it comes to how they buy media for Betson, based on the fact that we are also leveraging third-party auditors to evaluate whether they're fulfilling their promise when it comes to you know, the, the cost of media, the rebates that they're getting, uh, the strategy that they're providing to us, whether there are some sort of hidden fees or not. Mm. So that's, that's a big chunk of my job because even though it looks very much legal related or procurement related, these specific changes can make a huge difference when it comes to efficiency. And it, it has proven to, to save us quite a bit of, of budget. Yeah. And all those savings are, you know, savings that we can then reallocate into specific markets where we want to, to go even further. So that's uh one part of my job. The other one is uh, looking to innovation. Mm. Um, look also into the marketing technology, the, mar the uh, um, ad tech ecosystem that we leverage at Betson and see whether we can pipe the different components of this technology in a bit 
in a way that is a bit more efficient so that we can also you know, squeeze budget a bit more and drive better efficiency as well. For example, you could look into the fact that we might use multiple brands or multiple technologies that fulfill the same need. But then if you pitch them against each other at the global level, then we'll, you will have an economy of scale because then you, know, you will buy bigger volume of media through one unique solution rather than having multiple solutions buying media in markets, but market by market and not at the global level. I mean, this is a, a huge, huge topic here. Um, so I'm trying to think how to break this down. So, I mean, it, and it's all interrelated, right? Because you're, you're looking for value. You're looking to make confident decisions, you know, particularly when you're working at scale, because the implication is, you know, a percentage saving here and there can be numerically a lot of money, which can be put back into staff, can be put back into other things. Um, yes. But that comes back to, you know, the auditing side for the agencies, which I think is a really interesting approach because you've got so many potential black boxes with paid media these days. Yes. Where it's like, well, and, and, and even scandals now with like YouTube, I think quite recently there was quite a big case about where ads were being shown. Yes. Um, all this type of stuff. So having some external benchmark is, is, is good from a value perspective, but also to try and create that internal knowledge, I guess, as well, because with all this, all the mystery around some of these paid media um, channels, developing a mindset where you can scrutinize it constructively is important. And I think the auditing part is a good idea because otherwise, and this is me talking from an agency perspective, there is a risk that it becomes a us and them situation with the agency and the internal team. Yes. Your internal team wondering, am I getting what what I need to get? Are there secret kickbacks? What you know, what's going on? Whereas if you have an external party maybe asking some of the tougher questions, the relationship might be a bit more, you know, constructive. I agree with you. Yes. Uh, well, to to add to what you were saying about the scandals. Back in 2016, I was um, a global digital lead uh, for at Mindshare, servicing Nestle. And at the time, viewability was a very, very big topic. And Facebook over-evaluated the performance of the viewability that they were offering within you know, their platform. But one day, a third-party <laughs> third amplification platform was involved, that being, I think, Integral Ad Science is the amplification platform that was used. And it revealed that the viewability that Facebook claimed was so performant was not. Well, guess what? Without disclosing much, but you know, it's past history anyways, Nestle had asked us to evaluate what loss they had made by over uh, spending within Facebook based on pretty much a lie or something that was not really reliable. So we did the work in collaboration with the publicists. So it was publicists and group M work collaboratively because those were the two agencies or the two groups working together. We gave them our analysis and then you know, the scandal stopped. And what my belief is, is that, you know, Nestle took it to, 
to to Facebook and Facebook probably reimbursed quite a, a big chunk of money to to Nestle to I just mean, shut shut it down. It's 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 wild and and the thing is you know for for listeners who who might who might think you know well if you go with Meta you know Facebook and Google these are the trusted well known people this kind of stuff happens and you know not everybody is the size of Nestle where you can lawyer up and get a quiet refund. Some other people will just lose the money, and this is again part of the challenge with paid media because some some people, and you know some people particularly in this industry of eye gaming, so long as the number they've got coming back is bigger than the number they're spending, some well quite a lot of companies in my experience are okay with that. Whereas obviously we know they could be getting more money, they could be have more transparency, and you know this is kind of partly. I guess I guess people should take this with a bit of a pinch of salt. In that ICS, we focus mostly on the organic side, so yeah, we would have a little bit of a, you know, I guess prejudice towards organic direct acquisition. But you know, these are real issues to engage with with paid media. Um, yes. In a way, a lot of a lot of things have got easier, but a lot of things have got a little bit tricky and more mysterious as well. This has been going on for for a very long time, and. Um, My take is that the um, iGaming industry very often claims to be ahead of the curve when it comes to technology. I'm fairly new to the industry. I work across multiple industries on the agency side, but I've been in the industry for about six years now. And I feel that this industry is very much introverted, mm-hmm. not very extroverted in the sense that they're not looking outside the box to find, you know, um, what it is that they could improve or what it is that this industry could improve learning from the others. Um, I'm, I'm not sure yet. I still haven't been able to pinpoint exactly what's causing that. Yeah. But what, what I like very much about My role is that we have an internal team working on some of the below-the-line activities, mm-hmm. but we also leverage agencies that do that for us in some specific markets. And so we have people in-house that can evaluate whether the agency is providing the right service that we need, or sometimes they can just learn from the agencies that are working across multiple brands, tricks and mm. Uh, novelties that they would never otherwise thought about. Yeah, I mean, it's really interesting because you've got to look at what is unique about an industry and treat that seriously. Um, I'm, 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 my own suspicion about this industry is because, you know, for a lot of people it is comparatively controversial or misunderstood. Therefore, maybe it's no wonder that people in the industry are a bit more introverted and talk to each other because, you know, People externally, they might under, they might feel like they understand what a travel company is all about or what a banking company is all about, but they might not really understand, you know, casino or sports book. It might seem a bit strange to them. So yeah, I do understand why people talk to themselves within the industry. But then, I've also experienced people within the industry only talking to people within their specific geographic region. Like, yes, America's growing. Well, it's, it's it's growing in an interesting way. It's they're still growing, yes. But I've experienced so many people in the U.S. market who are not willing to learn the lessons and shortcuts and positive best practice from Europe because Europe has been through pretty much everything, 
you know, from <laughs> regulators, from marketing platforms to all this stuff and Google penalties and recoveries and all this. But uh, I think a lot of US focused brands are, you know, going their own way. Oh my goodness. So I love Americans. I have two American kids. So I'm very much tied up with America. I'm not American, but my ex is. I lived in, in New York for 14 years, about. And I wouldn't say the arrogance, but really the size of the market in the US makes them dictate what it is that they believe mm. is best. And very often, when I was working in New York, I had this type of mentality. I, I adopted the American mentality and say, they don't know, I mean, excuse my words, but Europe doesn't know shit. <laughs> you know, we know better, we bigger, we are, you know, from New York or from, I don't know, California or, you know. And um, I came with that type of arrogance to Europe. I got slapped. <laughs> I, it, it didn't work. It doesn't work this way. We, there is a huge gap, a huge cultural difference between Americans and Europeans. We, we are partners when it comes to some of the political alliances and economical alliances. But when, when it comes to culture, even, even though we consume a lot of the American media and mm -hmm. a lot of the, the entertainment types of things that they provide to us, uh, when it comes to work, the, the, the mentality is very different. They work with bigger budgets. Um, there, there are many more things that you can test because of those budgets. Um, and so it's, it's very, I just wanted to reinforce what it is that you were saying. It's very, I would say, tough for the American people to adopt uh, the things that we've learned in Europe coming you know, from the iGaming industry because they, they don't know much about it. We know a lot, but they will come up with their own science around it. Yeah, I think it's just something needs to play itself out, I guess. But I'm glad you touched, you touched upon your time in New York. So, I mean, let's, let's backtrack a little bit. I'd be good to learn a little bit more about your own career journey. So, you've, as you said, you've worked agency side, you've lectured, many other yes. things. Is there anything that you've experienced across your career so far or any... Any predictions that you made that have came true? Any developments across your career that you feel have been very unexpected in media, for example? Um, so let, let's go, let's start with the career. I started my career in search engine optimization. So I come from an organic search background. What I like about it, and I, and I often give that as a recommendation to those who want to start a career in digital marketing, is that I say start with SEO. Um, it's a good way to start your career because you touch the technology. You, you um, also have to understand the algorithm and mm -hmm. pretty much um, artificial intelligence, really, because it's a big topic that's being discussed, but it's not new. You know, Google actually is very strong when it comes to artificial intelligence and the robot that they use to scroll the pages, etc. So you would have the technological part, you would have... The, also the experience part, that's very important. And uh, I would say also um, all, all things related to, to the content. Mm. I'm not talking about links. <laughs> that's a different story. Um, what I didn't predict 
what they didn't predict. I thought that SEO was going to die. And I didn't give much future to SEO, hence why I decided to branch out a little bit and adopt paid search. Because I figured that if paid search is something that drives revenue to Google, mm-hmm. this is not something that they would drop. Yeah. And then when they started to you know, penalize websites based on all the PBN that they were that they were existing and all the, the link building scheme, I mean schemes and scams that were happening, I thought, oh my goodness, something's gonna happen. Mm-hmm. And so I, I adopted the, the paid search and SEO together because I thought that they were very valuable when it comes to the quality score and again the experience that Google wants to enhance within the search engine result page. Um, what I didn't predict is that I would love programmatic. Mm-hmm. So I shifted from more like acquisition-driven types of channels to more like branding types of channels. Though very often programmatic in iGaming is used as a conversion channel. Yeah, very direct. Trying to drive yeah, yeah. NDCs. I don't believe in it. It does not work for this. It's not the purpose of programmatic. The click-through rate, average benchmark, in programmatic is 0.09%. Mm-hmm. You can't beat PPC. Yeah, yeah. It doesn't work for this. It has a different purpose. So when it comes to prediction, the prediction I have or I know is cooking is the fact that... Um, the fear that people have around the third-party cookies disappearing mm-hmm. is something that's going to serve the industry even more because the personalization of the targeting is going to be a lot more efficient. Um, that's one of those things that I, that I see happen. You know, the, you know, GDPR has pushed the industry to find workarounds and limitations that the cookie-less... Well, uh, and, setup and, uh, will, you know, will drive, but it, it's actually better for the industry. That's the way I see it. Well, and, and people have to put some harder work in to get some first-party data, you know, to actually be worthy of, you know, somebody who clicks through and gives their details, you know, and to maintain that relationship as well. Yes. That's yes. Uh, otherwise, other prediction. No, I, I, I don't particularly. Um... No, oh, maybe the GAFAMs really reinforcing their walls. Mm-hmm. Um, that's one that needs to be observed. I mean, they own 80% of the market, the, the market share, the, the market worldwide when it comes to all things media. But they are really, I mean, GDPR really has um, accentuated or accelerated uh, the behavior of these GAFAMs, I mean, just for the audience, GAFAM stands for Google, Amazon, Facebook, Apple, and Microsoft. Mm-hmm. Those are the dominant technology platforms in the world. And because of GDPR, they're leveraging GDPR as an alibi to close their walls even further yeah. and making it more difficult to even be audited when you think about it. Yeah, I mean, as, as, as we touched on before, there are these kind of mysterious... Um black boxes and I guess and some of it is you know literally they feel that they cannot for um, 
regulatory reasons give out details but or allow you to target in certain ways and also for their own IP they don't want to tell you quite how everything works and so on but I mean it's, it's a real challenge to figure out you know how do you know you're getting value because you know ever pretty much everyone can say look oh yeah I'm getting more money in than I am spending yes but it's, it's, that's not massively sophisticated I mean it, it can still work if you're working at volume if you're working at scale but I mean, as you alluded to with the programmatic, um, you know, we need to look at not just the money in, but what what are people doing when they see that ad? Like, is it is it driving a a sign up? Which we, okay, great. But is is it also leaving an impression? Is it helping further the brand in some way? Yes. Um, this is where all of these things tie up into one, because we know also that trust is so important to Google across organic, but also yes. how it. You know, wants to manage its own operation. It doesn't want to be surfacing erroneous results and losing trust of its own uh, users. So yeah, I mean, it's it's so it's difficult to kind of isolate any of these elements because they're all so interconnected. Yes, but you know, one topic I'd like to bring up when it comes to this, right? I did, you might have heard of it, but we we launched a campaign on a football manager that was program, programmatically driven. Um, not sure if you, you heard of it. I'm not sure what one is this. So that was during the World Cup FIFA that took place in Qatar. And one of the new measurements that's replacing viewability now is all attention. The use, I mean, the, the use of a technology is very different from what a viewability is. Basically, there is a technology that evaluates or looks at the retina. Mm -hmm. And really does look at at your eyes to make sure that you're really paying attention to the ad or the screen that's being shown to you. So they they use focus groups to analyze that. One of the companies that does that is called Lumen. Nielsen is getting a little bit involved with this. There is another one called Adelaide. Mm -hmm. um, and so we've leveraged these uh, technologies to evaluate whether attention could be a new metric in, for the future. And so we decided to advertise in the game. That was really in the football manager game. So when you see the players, you know, playing, then you would see an ad from Betson or Betsafe. That those were the two brands that we leveraged for for the competition. And the the reason why I'm bringing this up is that these ads were not intrusive. They were completely integrated integrated in the game just as if you were watching a football game, like a real one, but mm -hmm. this one is a fantasy game. You cannot interact with the ad. It's just viewable, but it's deployed programmatically. So you could not expect any NDCs with that. But what we've seen is a massive, massive uplift in brand recall. Mm. Massive. And so I'm just sharing this because this is you know, something that brings value more than anything else. Once you have a strong brand recall, once you have a higher frequency of that brand, you know, coming up, then you will automatically start searching for the brand yep. with an intent that's much closer to the lower funnel than just looking for, let's say, a non-branded keyword that is not really clearly, you know, saying, okay, I want to play with Betson, but I want to play Casino. Okay, you want to play with Casino, which one? And yep. then... You would have results with multiple yeah. casinos there. No, no, no. Here, Betson. What's Betson? Oh, Betson. Oh, casino. 
And the research shows that gamers are gamblers. Mm. I mean, there's, Perfect there's audience. lots of overlap there. But this is also really interesting in terms of, I guess, what you'd call... I'm trying to think of what, how to phrase it. But I feel like that kind of like passive consumption of branded material is really powerful. It's yeah. like what you call it, like at the kind of side of your eye, like the kind of peripheral vision, you're picking up on it. And then that kind of creates a brand image as well. If you are present, but not pushy, that, that helps drive a lot of activity. And it's, you know, big, big brands have known this forever. You yes. know, it's, it's kind of the basis of a lot of sponsorship anyway. But it's why Indeed. people, you know, it's when they'll have that recall when they eventually are looking for something. Yes. And it'll, that will encourage them to make a decision. Because when they do a direct search, a more active search, you know, there's going to be a million options because, you know, Google will present, you know, top 10 and infinite scroll of search results. And yes. it'll also present, you know, multiple paid ads at the top of the page anyway. So no matter what you search, you're going to have option paralysis. But if you have that brand affinity, not even affinity, but that, this, that confidence that this brand will be okay, that's, that's, yes. that justifies the click, you know? Whereas Indeed. the other brands I've never heard of, I don't know. So Indeed. It's very Building interesting. Building a trust also. Yeah, and it, it, this comes back to the content side as well, you know, because this is, you know, content dependent as well. You know, the, the context of the content is quite interesting. Yes. But um, I mean, how would you say your audiences respond to content in general? Like what kind of material gets them interested once they have clicked through or like what kind of, you know, maybe not like straightforward transactional offers, but what, what kind of other type of messaging do people respond to? Hmm. I'm not really much involved into the creative but I think that one of those things we're trying to do is to leverage dynamic content optimization. That's one of those. So coming back to the attention metric, it's not just about placing an ad that's going to catch the attention. It's also mm. placing an ad that is relevant at that very moment in that specific context and surrounded by content that's relevant to the content of the ad that's pushed into that page, right? And so if I look into paid media specifically, you know, and the paid media content that we're amplifying through the media, the paid media channels, an effort that we still need to work on is to make sure that the content is um, pretty much personalized to that very person at that very moment on that specific page, basically. That's what needs to be done. Now, Operationally, it's, it's a bit complicated. Uh, I've seen some challenges within our structure. You know, affiliate sometimes leverages some of the banners that we have, or we mm -hmm. leverage some of the banners that we have. But the purpose is completely different. Affiliate is driving acquisition, mostly trying to drive acquisition. Sure. Programmatic or display is really measured differently. It's a CPM measurement. It's not a CPA measurement. So... The goal is different, but yet the creative is the same. <laughs> so it, it's tough. Well that's, well, that's kind of what we're saying earlier. Like, it is hard to pick apart the different elements of this type of strategy because the idea is not that one single channel takes full responsibility for every aspect of acquisition. Well, I guess some people still operate on that basis, but you know, if we, if we look at ourselves as consumers, we'll, there will be multiple touch points. There'll be stuff that we're more conscious of seeing, less conscious of seeing, 
and hopefully the the total marketing strategy helps to drive people towards a profitable decision. Yes. Um, but yes, yeah, it's, it's it's definitely fascinating to consider how all these different elements map together um, across different channels. But when when you come when it comes to content, I think that my dream is to have a fluid contextual content from the very moment someone is being touched all the way down to the moment that same person is buying the product. Mm -hmm. So you could have contextual content. Actually, there is one uh, one company in Belgium, and I don't specifically want to advertise. It's called Adis, whatever. And they were doing, doing uh, some... Um, contextualization uh, for a supermarket. It's called Deleuze, the, the lion. Well, it's a big, it's a big company in Belgium, mm -hmm. but they're also very much present in the UN, United States. But the, the content that was amplified outside of the website would then be very specific and similar, exactly the same as what it is that you would see on the website. So you're being reached with the message, but then we, when you land on the landing page, that content that was personalized to you is continuing to be personalized once you fall into the own media. Yeah. So it's a continu continuation of the story. So it takes you from being reached all the way down to the website and then down to acquisition funnel. Yeah, I mean, that's that's the ideal. But particularly, you know, when we are talking about retail, you know, yeah. that, that's an important part because, you know, there might be some case where, you know, well, if it's grocery, then you need to do your groceries at some point. But if it's something like, I don't know, like a more um, unnecessary purchase, like a pair of trainers or something like that, and, you know, might have had a, a annoying commute home, and then you get there, you get retargeted with a display ad, and you're like, okay, I'll click it. And then it takes you to the category page, and then you go to search. I'm like, God, now my, my, now my day's even worse. And yeah. I'm not I'm not spending that money anymore because now I've just thought about it for a second, so I'm not going to do that. So yeah, creating a seamless experience is, is good. Um, yeah. and, but as, coming back to like you know the, the quirks of this industry, there are so many clever ways of that people are trying to, you know, get more and more insight about their media strategy. But there's also people that are literally bidding on the word casino. Yes, you know, which is extremely expensive for those who don't know. Yes. Um, so, you know, there's so many, and I, one of my favorite experiences, this is, well, not in life, but in work, I suppose, was uh, I did a bit of research a few years ago um, for an article I was writing, and it was around, you know, paid media strategy for some of the larger operators. And there was one very, very large operator who was bidding on uh, World Cup terms, and the link for the ad went through to the World Cup of Athletics page, which, yeah. you know, that's, that's, a, that's, a, that's a biggie because, you know, at the peak of the World Cup, you know, cost per click is high anyway, but to yes. then, you know, miss out on that is, a, is kind of painful. But again, as we said before, some of these big, big companies, they just look at the money in versus money out and again it's an industry where there are quite passionate customers you know they yes. want to place a bet on england v croatia they're going to find a way to do it because that's what they want to do and the game is about to start yes so they'll they'll work around some of these failings but i think 
I mean, I mean, what I hope is people will have listened to what you've been saying throughout this podcast and will be inspired to try different ways, be it auditing, be it tech, be it looking at attention and other metrics. I mean, there's, there's lots of things and lots of platforms worth evaluating. Yeah, I, I would say that when if I may give a recommendation is not to limit yourself to attend conferences or um, expos in the iGaming sector, but also attend conferences that are related, I mean, in my, my, my position, uh, conferences that are related to, to media. So the likes of the Mexico in Germany would be a nice one to go to. Um, Programmatic Pioneer is another one. Web Summit in Lisbon mm -hmm. seems to be a nice one. The one I'd like to go and attend for the first time, I've never been there, is uh, the Can Lion Festival. Wow, yeah. That, that that would be. I think this year, my I mean this year, no, 2024 might be the year when I'm gonna I'm gonna go. With, I hope well, so. I mean, and that's it. There's, there's, there's a, definitely a digital component to Can. That's you know something yeah. people might not be fully aware of. So yeah, I think you know seeing people in person is a you know it's it's part of the iGaming sector for sure, but also taking advantage of these other um, opportunities to see, ask questions, experience, look at what people are up to. You know, it's all good food for thought. It's important because that that's why sometimes I get access to some sort of knowledge uh, in the industry. You know, when I was working on the on the advertising agency all the tech solutions would actually come to the agency for us to resell it to the, ad the advertisers, right? So they were trying to convince us. So I've developed a, a network in the media industry that now, I mean, I've known those people for a very long time, just like many people in the iGaming industry have known many people mm -hmm. that stayed within the iGaming industry for so many years and they have also their perks, right? But what I, what I like about this is that it has given me access to information that maybe some others do not get access to because of the fact that they, they don't have these relationships. But if they don't have these relationships and they didn't have the opportunity to start their career in advertising agency, then maybe another alternative would be to go to those events and start developing their network within yeah. the industry where they're practicing the specific ex expertise in, in media or marketing. I mean, it's definitely an interesting balance because I think it's good to expand the circle because you don't know what you're missing out on unless you go and take a look. Yeah. But I've also, well, I mean, directly, this is, um, you know, something that happens maybe not, not on a monthly basis, but certainly every two months, we will have contact to ICS from um, a company that has been hurt really badly because they went with an agency that said they understood gaming but actually doesn't. And they've got in trouble with content that's not fitting fit for regulatory purposes. That's all this type of stuff that might jeopardize a license, or you know, there's all, all sorts. And trans, like mistranslation is so huge. So translation is a huge part of what we do, and people aren't fully aware that you know translation isn't just about accuracy. It's about what is correct for a particular jurisdiction. Yes. And also making sure people can functionally understand what's going on. So yeah, it's it's difficult because you got you want to take on new information, but you also don't want to be um, you want to make sure that while you're learning, that these outside uh, companies are also learning about you, so you get a good fit. That's yes, kind of a really key thing to do. Um, yes. Like what, so I'm going to think about like learning. Like what, what, what do you think other industries can learn from this sector? You know, we talked about how iGaming can be a bit insular, 
But is there anything outsiders could learn from this particular industry? Um, the flexibility, the agility that's needed in this industry. Because today you can operate in one market, tomorrow you cannot do certain things. Yeah, yeah, so yeah. you need to reinvent yourself rather quickly. So the agility is super key. I, I'm not going to disclose things that we do at Betson to really still fulfill the compliance, mm -hmm. yet work within the loopholes that are pretty much permitted to keep uh, operating while a decision needs to be made. I mean, there are many decisions that are being made in Latin America. Mm -hmm. um, and so being able to adapt, be flexible and agile is super key in this industry. Yeah, that's a really good um, one. It's a, it's a good discipline to have, definitely. In terms yeah. of those geographical markets, are there any that you're most excited about, find most interesting? Um, you know, how, how would you tailor your media strategy to different markets, or is it more channel-based? Um, no, the, the, the channels are used to achieve a specific object, objective, so we, we, we look at the objective of growth for specific markets, and then leverage a media mix that encompasses multiple channels to achieve that objective. So I don't base the strategy on the channel specifically, but mm -hmm. mostly look at how each channel can contribute to the growth in that market measured in brand awareness or brand health, but also measured in, in revenue, you know? Sure. So which market really interests me? I would say that you know the excitement of the Nordics is decreasing quite quite a bit given the challenges that many of those markets represent. So I don't find much excitement there at the moment. I think now, and again because of how successful we are at Betson, Latin America, from the very beginning though, from from the time I joined about three years ago, and when I worked on that pitch with uh, Andrea, um, Latin America interested me. I saw great potential there. Um, I felt the energy that Andrea Rossi was um, communicating, you know, not really mm -hmm. just verbally, but also with his energy. Um, we bonded really quickly. And so it's not just about the excitement of the market itself. It's also the excitement to be able to work with someone who is driven and has the passion and the experience in the iGaming industry that mm -hmm. not many people have. So it's a mix of both, the market, but also the people I work with. And I, I think that, I know I, I mentioned his name a few times, but working with him is a, is a, is a great pleasure. I don't know if he will listen to, to this podcast, but he knows how much I appreciate, uh, appreciate him. Well, I mean, good colleagues makes everything a lot easier. But I mean, yeah. I, I, I would also agree about LATAM, but particularly Brazil, because it feels like even on a population basis alone, it's, it, I, I like markets where there's enough room for diversity. Yes. You know, I think some, you mentioned the Nordics. I think uh, I, th I think there's probably questions about how many winners there can be in, mm. in those countries at present. You know, how many companies can be sustainable from an operator and affiliate basis, given yes. some of the challenges, whereas, you know, somewhere like Brazil... I would hope there will be quite a large ecosystem of affiliates, game studios, and you know, really localized solutions. You know, local yes. and, and the development of local industry as well, not just um, people from Europe. You know, pr promoting their brands, but some a real kind of organic uh, development there. That that would be quite interesting to me. 
Oh, Brazil, Brazil is a big, uh, is, is a big, uh, it's a huge market. It, it's not Latam, it's just Brazil. So very often, you know, people make the mistake to compare Brazil with the rest of Latin America, but it's not. It's a different culture, it's a different language, it's a huge country. Uh, unlike other parts of the world, the wealthy people are in the south and not in the north. <laughs> You know, that, that one was, um, you know, the, 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 the southern provinces are actually the wealthiest. Um, but there are some dominant players that I won't name on, on, on this, um, in this conversation that really, really owe a huge market share, massive market share. And uh, those are going to be hard to push out. Um, they, they have large budgets. Betson is big, but there are bigger organizations that have larger budgets and really being able to get kick them out or actually challenge them head to head is going to be tough and it's going to take a long time. I think it's going to be intriguing though, because at least there is that potential because from a population basis, if nothing else, there is that potential to, you know, be more segmented, you know, take a different view. We'll, yeah, we'll see, we'll see how it goes. I'd say, I guess similar for the US as well. Which is, I guess, kind of happening to an extent already because of the you know state by state strategy people have to take. But um, but look, yeah. I think I'm not part of these decisions that Betson makes. But the way I look at it, Betson has made quite a bit of really good decisions, and we see this in the latest numbers that were actually um, shared today. Betson has been growing for for the past last seven quarters every quarter so the growth has been continuing quarter after quarter seven times and this one might not be any exception to it anyways i find betson to be a challenger very often in many places except in a few markets but even though we are a challenger in many of those markets we still be, can grow and you know be very profitable so the approach that Betson has taken for a very long time and still does is very cautious, leverage its agility, leverage its 60 years of experience mm -hmm. um, to slowly but surely you know, penetrate the markets and then also sometimes make decisions quick enough to actually get away from it or reassess. So it has this maturity that I like a lot. Well, I mean, I think that's a mindset that I think is worth, um, you know, lots of companies reflecting upon, not just people in gaming, but outside of gaming as well, to think, you know, not just how can I confidently capitalize on opportunities, um, which might mean going a little bit slower than others, but also, how do I not, you know, as the phrase goes, throw good money after bad, you know, yes. to, to kind of recognize when a, a switch is needed and to be able to make that happen. And, and some of that's this is a horrible, horrible word, but some of that's around alignment, having mm -hmm. a company that can, you know, do, do that, you know, they can make that decision and make it happen in a way that's not going to be disruptive, you know, beyond all recognition. So yeah, I think lots. Um, we've been we've been talking a little bit about the depth of iGaming here, which is not what we usually do on this podcast. But I think it's good for people to reflect on, you know, how things are done in this industry, 
some of the challenges, some of the opportunities, certainly some of the discipline that's in this sector. Yes. I think it's worth paying attention to. Um, one question we always like to finish up on is, is, is a kind of variation of this one, which is, you know, how do you build a high-performing team? And it's, that can be in, in media, it can be in gaming, can be it can be in agencies. Well, given your background, um, yes. What other departments do you think are important to collaborate with when building up a team? So, I had the great honor to work for two fantastic advertising agencies, and I called them my digital marketing ABA and MBA agencies. I, I didn't get an MBA, but I, I think I earned it working for those agencies. The first one is Digitas, which is part of the Publicis Group, and the other one is RGA, which is part of the Interpublic Group. Two fantastic full two full service agencies. So they offer the creative, media, research, the full Shazam. Um, and so one of them, Digitas, had set a structure to evaluate the staff, the resources. And some of the pillars that were used to evaluate the staff were communication skills, understanding of your specific media channel and how much you can grow within it. Then the understanding of the other channels. So I would say mastery of your channel, understanding of the other channels, communication skills, project management. So those were the four pillars that we would look into to evaluate people, number one. Number two, for each level, you would already know what the requirement was for you to move up the ladder. So you would start as an SEO analyst. These are the requirements across those four pillars that you need to fulfill to earn and keep your job as an SEO analyst. And then if you want to move up the ladder, then that's very simple. Here is the job description of what is required for you to move up as a senior analyst or something like this. So you would always have some sort of a bait for you to grow, but you knew exactly what it is that you needed to achieve to actually get to that level. That's a motivational incentive, really, that you can look at. It's clear. It's very clear. Mm. And then for you to be able to earn that type of role, then you would need to practice what it is that's specifically stated within the job description of the level above yours for at least a minimum of six months to be eligible for you to move up the ladder. That was one. So I think that coming back to the very question you asked, to build a good team, you need to have a, a clear structure to set clear expectations, but also provide the right support for those people to achieve the objectives that are clearly stated in the job descriptions mm -hmm. state by stage. Establishing great relationships with Google. I had that at, um, at, at Digitas. Google would come every week, every week on Thursday. I will never forget. So on Tuesday, you had Yahoo. On Wednesday, you had Microsoft. On Thursday, you had Google. They all offered free breakfast. Google was the best. <laughs> <laughs> you know, they all offered free breakfast and different types of presentations, etc. They were amazing. And so... You would get the support of these people. 
Another thing that Digitas did was really, really amazing in New York was uh, charity work. So we would work with the likes of Google, Yahoo, and Microsoft with Digitas. They would finance, you know, some sort of a, they would give us a specific budget, and we would actually go to a school in the Bronx and rebuild the playground of that school. So we would be 600 people in that school, coordinated by volunteers from Digitas to actually do this. After this, the reward was, again, sponsored from one of those big ones, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, we would go in one of those beautiful venues in New York and, uh, and, and have fun together. So you would do extra, extracurricular activities, just mm. like kids, but you know that's cool. You're at work, but you don't feel like it's work. And you're contributing to something fantastic. So those things were initiatives that Digitals has, had done and bring your, your kid to work. Uh, many, many things like this. Uh, so they put an emphasis on the people. So building a great team is about great, building a great, a great dynamic from a corporation standpoint. Mm. From my standpoint as a person is to be reachable, available, uh, hence why I do the lecture, to be also uh, reliable, trustable or trustworthy in a sense that I like to get my hands dirty and, and, and speak from experience rather than speaking I was saying something that I don't really know. If I don't know the answer, then I cannot give you the answer and I'll, and I'll say it. That's mm-hmm. it. Uh, I don't have the answer to everything. So the, the honesty would be, would be that. And then also be a resource to these people and say, look, if, if you want to grow in your career, you have this path or you have this path. I remember once uh, one of my employees came to me and was crying because she accepted a job doing paid search but she really much liked to do project management. And I said, and then she wasn't paid enough. I said, but then you accepted a job that does not pay you enough. You've only been here a few months and you already started crying. I think you made the wrong decision. However, I said, let me look into what other possibilities exist within this department for you to grow and also enjoy. But also if you consent, then I can ask my superior if he knows of any other role within the organization that will you know, be needed, then they will fulfill your desire to change or, or take a different direction. Well, at the end, I managed to give her a bit more of a management, project management role, uh, simply given the fact that she had that type of experience and she spoke both French and English. And the client we had was IBM in Paris. So she could establish that good relationship and it was justified. So, you know... Stuff like this. Yeah, but then I mean, sometimes you need to have an iron fist and really be tough with people. Well, I mean, I think, I think if you set out the, you know, the straightforward expectations, then, you know, that helps in all directions. So we, we started out this conversation talking a little bit around um, agency relationships with clients and how, how to kind of keep that honest, I suppose. That was something yes. we touched on a little bit. But it's a similar thing, you know, in the workplace. You know, some people choose to have an adversarial kind of setup where they don't want to be asked for help. They'd rather people didn't, like, push anything. And, you know, it's better to have that framework where the expectations are set and fair rather than ambiguity. And And that also cuts across a lot of what we've been talking about is ambiguity is dangerous having yes. that lack of clarity, uncertainty, 
you know, that, that makes a difference for employees, but also, you know, looking for that informed click or to get that type of brand recognition. Everything we've been talking about really relies on developing more certainty. But uh, yeah, I think there's lots of stuff in there for people to, you know, reflect upon. Yeah, another one is that these people that you manage could one day be at the same level as yours. These people that you manage might end up working for another organization and come back to you and knock at the door and say, hey, Martin, remember when we were working together, we were doing this? How about this product? Do you like it? And you already have a relationship, a great relationship with these guys that were reporting to you or you, that you were reporting to. It can go you know, both directions. But it's these people that you will always have a very solid relationship with that you will be like, yeah, I know he's not selling me something that is going yeah. to be bad for me. It's something that I can trust. And then, okay, I'll test it, give it a shot, and then it can benefit the employer for which well, you work. Is, I think, again, that, that baseline of trust is cut across a lot of what we've spoken about because we have so many options. If you do a search online or if you're like navigating the web or whatever, there are, there's no shortage of things being shown to you. Yeah. So for your own sanity, you have to pick whatever feels best, feels worthy of your time. Yeah. And that's, again, where you know human relationships come into it. You'll hear somebody out if you know they have a track record of being fair and straightforward. Um, so, yeah, that's, that's a nice nice collegial note to end on. <laughs> we've, talk, we've talked about, you know, the, the big, big kind of, media giants we've talked about some of the very specific aspects of iGaming which again I think is a fascinating industry and one that has a lot of discipline in a lot of ways so I think it's worth people outside of gaming figuring out a little bit you know how does it work um, what are some of the key learnings we've talked about um, well professional development like you mentioned there and talked about you know the different types of insight you can draw from um and analytics and reporting and all this type of stuff as well. So I'm sure there's stuff that I've, I've uh, <laughs> remembered, but we, it's a pretty wide-ranging conversation. So I think the last thing for me to say is thanks very much for taking part. It's been a pleasure on my side, and I'm sure our listeners will uh, take I, a lot from it. I share the pleasure, and thank you very much for, for giving me this opportunity. I very much enjoyed that conversation. So it's, it's very much shared. Thank you. Thank you, everybody. Speak to you next thank time. Thank you. Bye-bye.